Before we begin, let's take some time to pray for both Jean and Gilbert as they continue to um, deal with the loss of Jean's mom. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious, merciful, and loving, sovereign over every aspect of human existence. There is nothing that happens that takes you by surprise. There is no event, as painful as it may, it may be to us, that is shocking to you. Father, our hearts go out to Auntie Jean as she deals with the sorrow of the loss of a loved one. It is hard, Lord. We pray for her that your spirit may comfort her, that you would strengthen her, that she would find peace, not only in your word, but with your continued presence with her. Pray for Gilbert as he ministers to her, Lord. Pray that they both would find comfort in you. Bear them up, Lord, as they are bearing under the weight of the loss of a loved one. We pray that you would just minister to them in ways that we cannot, but also help us to minister to them in a way that demonstrates our love for them. So we pray these things for your glory and for your name. We ask, amen. James chapter 2. <clears throat> I am going to struggle with the light here, so if I misread, please do forgive me. Verse 14, James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. <clears throat> you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. <clears throat> and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not, Rahab, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? <clears throat> For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Very weighty section of scripture. There are three concluding verses in this portion from verse 17 through to 26. The first concluding phrase, which we saw last week, was verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the next one is verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that uh, faith apart from works is useless, useless? And then the last one is in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All three of them echo the same reality. Faith is an essential part of salvation, but not for salvation. 
Now, I know that there is some sort of dispute, dispute or discussion on verse 22. Uh, see, um, not verse 22, um, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Uh, there are books written on this which advocate works-based salvation, that we need works to be saved. And that is not at all what James is saying. When we read in English, it sounds a certain way. And when I get to it next week, I think it will be absolutely clear. But let me just say this before, if you don't come back. James does not mean that works saves. Not at all. Anywhere in the section. He does not mean that your works and your participation in works saves. So then it has to mean something different. And so when you come back next week, Lord willing, I hope that that would be absolutely clear. Last week we saw that James identifies dead faith, faith that cannot respond to an obvious need. I was really encouraged to hear how the saints rallied around uh, both Gilbert and Jean this week. It is amazing that we preach this sermon last week that faith needs to be active and then God grants us an opportunity to demonstrate what we believe. And there were those of you who at the moment of hearing could not help yourself but go and assist or help and give towards both Jean and, and Gilbert. That is what the implication is for this verse. When there is an obvious need, we step up. But in the context here, James says in verse 15 and 16, if a brother is poorly clothed, you have a visual need, and yet you say, be warmed and filled. I'll be praying for you, brother. I hope that you make it back home, sister. I know it's storming, brother, but uh, yeah, I can't give you a lift because I'm a woman. You're a, you're a guy. Obvious need, yet we look the other way, and James says, what? Good is that. Faith by itself means nothing. And now he's going to take faith by itself and expand on that a little bit further, which is our section this morning, verse 18 through to 20. I gave you a conceptual outline last week, verse 14 through 17, faith works. I think I said faith that works. Um, that's okay, but faith works. Um, this week we'll look at faith is never alone, part two. And then next week we'll see the illustration of faith. Faith illustrated through works. Thomas Watson said, quote, Grace does not lie as a sleepy habit in the soul, but will put forth itself in vigorous and glorious actings. He means works. Grace can no more be concealed than fire. Wow. Grace does not lie in the heart as a stone in the ground, but as a seed in the earth. You get the analogy, right? It will grow. It will spring up into good works. Our people must therefore also learn to devote themselves to good works. End quote. Wow. I just love how the Puritans write. They penetrate the heart Living faith is never an inoperative faith. Categorically, absolutely, it is never without the demonstration of work. Why? Because it is alive. Saving faith is active, but dead faith cannot respond in good works or in a pleasing manner to God. Now this does not mean that an unbeliever cannot engage in good works and Someone might say, what about those people? I'll get to that in a moment's time. But the point is not the works in and of itself, but the nature, the quality, and the motive for the works or the works that flow from faith. See, works by itself is equal to dead faith by itself. Neither prove the, a relationship with God. And what we will see this morning is that true faith is inseparable of good works. If you are saved, you will not be able to contain yourself to demonstrate the fact that God has changed your life. 
Orthodox belief, however, is not sufficient for salvation. Now, they may scare some of you. Hang on, I will get to that in a moment's time. This is the outline for this morning's sermon. Faith and works are inseparable, that's verse 18. Orthodox faith is not enough, verse 19, and then the conclusion, which is verse 20. I never had, when I was on my way to Middleburg this week, I, I, I drove with a friend of mine who um, was at seminary with me, and I said to him, I had the worst outline last week. I gave him the outline, and I said the last one was um, a deadly conclusion. He burst out laughing. Because we are not taught to have <laughs> an outline like that. Anyway, I, I'm breaking the rules this morning again. A true faith, um, true faith and works are inseparable. Verse 18. Let's read together. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my Works. James already made the case that there is no benefit in claiming that you have faith and you don't show that faith in active works. That's verse 14 to 16. Please don't understand. We are not advocating, neither is James, advocating that you can be saved by means of works. That is not in the least what we are saying. But what is in view is the demonstration of saving faith. This is the difference between calling, what shall I do to be saved, Lord, and saying, what shall I do for Christ who has saved me? That is what is in view here. Not the former, but the latter. What shall I do for him who has saved me? Dead faith will always be dead in works. That's the point in verse 14 through to 16. But here, James zooms in on the quality of faith as part of the equation as faith results in works or works is a necessary part of faith. Now some may think, let's get to that question, what about those people who are really good at giving to agencies, mission works, poor people, people who are good in social responsibility? That is a good question. What do we do with them? They are engaging in good works, right? They are doing good things. So does that mean they have a relationship with God? Well, no. They have works, but they may not have faith. And this is what James is talking about. There are two things that we have to consider. Faith will result in works, but sometimes there is works where there is no faith. And both mean the same thing. There is inevitably dead faith in the surrounding context. If we remove the works from that individual, what does he have? So for instance, let's say you have uh, a Muslim guy who gives to the poor and the needy. What if you have a good meaning nominal Christian? He's not made a profession of faith, but he gives to people who are in need. Does that mean that they are or have a relationship with God? Not in the least. That is works without faith. A child of God, however, is not unresponsive to the need of a Christian community. This is what James is talking about. We see the presentation of obedient, living faith. What genuine, salvific, that is salvation, um, faith, so salvific faith looks like. This is unlike the person who claims to have who has faith, who claims to have faith, but never darken the doors of a church community. There's always an excuse. Well, I really want to be there, but you don't understand my context. They are uninterested in Christian fellowship. They are unmoved by Christian need. Why? Because they can't be moved. They don't really care. And they may be giving financially to a specific need, but there's no heart behind it or love or concern for that person. Why? Because they are selfish and self-serving. This is what I call head knowledge and empty profession of Christ. This kind of unresponsive dead faith is what James is condemning. 
This is the kind of faith that affirms the reality of God, the existence of Jesus Christ, but has no personal relationship with Him. It falls short of personal commitment to Him, this Christ, and His bride. That is dead faith. You may know of Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. This kind of faith majors in the externals of religiosity, but fail in the basic principles of following Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the next is like it, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. When we say we follow Christ, those two things will be evident in our lives. Now, verse 18 raises a hypothetical objection. This is probably one of the most difficult sections to translate and work through. Where does the opponent start to speak and where does he end? Now, you may not have thought about that, but it actually is an important question. It may mean nothing to you to know when he speaks. Look at the text again. But someone will say, so ordinarily, when that phrase occurs, what follows is normally the quotation, right? It makes sense. Now someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I can tell you the translators have at least eight different views as to how this ought to go. I'm going to give you some of the most um, significant ones. There is a bit of a problem. The grammar, yes, is awkward. Um, there's one translation, or I should say, one manuscript that has a question mark just after faith in the first line. Listen, this is with a question mark. But someone will say, you have faith? That, that's me adding a question mark in there. You, you really have faith? But then when does the opponent stop speaking? And I have works where, hang on, what is James's main point in this section? You don't have works, right? So then if you don't have works, how can he say, I have works? That creates a little bit of a problem to the entire section. Secondly, there is a clear contrast between what goes before and the foolish person. Look at the, the beginning of verse 18. But someone will say, so this is in contrast to what James has now previously said. What did he say in verse 14 through to 17? Faith without works is what? Dead. But now there's a contrast. But someone will say, this is a very strong adversative in Greek. So in contrast to saying that, I am going to say this. So he's not saying the same thing then. He's saying something different, and you see the opposition again in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So it seems that James is returning to the same point then, that faith without works is of no value. I hope I've confused you a little bit. That's the point. This passage when you read it in the original, is really confusing. Our translators have smoothed it out a little bit. You have faith and I have works is in quotation marks, so that means that is the opponent. He is called an interlocutor. You don't ever have to remember that word again. It's an imaginary opponent. So he says to James, you have faith and I have works. Then James responds, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I have not given you the four different views. I've just explained it, and I don't need to actually give you the four most prominent views. It's not important for our context. But why is this important? Let me show you. I'm going to explain the significance of this in three different ways. We we'll all come to the same point. In the first line... He says, he makes a claim, you, which refers to James, have faith, and I, refers to the opponent, the imaginary opponent, have works. Now think about it. What's the accusation? Faith without works is dead. That's what James is saying to him. But now he responds to James and says, you have faith, 
and I have works. You can imagine in your mind there's a debate happening and there is a conversation between these two. So James is trying to capture a conversation between an imaginary uh, um, opponent. So here's the first proof, and it's a historical proof. When was this written? Well, you don't have to give me the exact date. It is prior to AD 49, which is when the Gentiles were added into the church, which means this is still predominantly what? Jewish. How do you know that? Chapter 2, verse 2 says that when you meet in a what? Synagogue. So you know that a Jewish audience is in mind. But look at chapter 1, verse 27. This, think Jewish mind, listen to this. This would be shocking to them. Religion. And it's actually an active demonstration of faith or belief. So an active demonstration of worship that is pure and undefiled before God. What do you think those words pure and undefiled mean? Where is that taken from? From the sacrificial system. A lamb had to be what? Pure and undefiled. A dove had to be pure and undefiled. It is sacrificial language. Think about this. James is saying... To those Jews who have now been removed because of persecution from the temple, they cannot make sacrifices. And he says, your act of worship, the word the religion, your demonstration of worship, your pure and undefiled demonstration of worship can be seen in this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Think Jewish context. That's replacement theology for them. What on earth, James? I need to go and offer a sacrifice. How can you say to me that this is what worship looks like? James says, I'm telling you that there is a replacement of the pure and undefiled sacrifice. Why? Because there's already one pure and undefiled sacrifice that has taken place. He's already been given that is Christ the Lord. So you do not need to give ongoing pure and undefiled sacrifices. God has already accepted the one sacrifice for all. But in a Jewish mindset, this would have been horrendous to hear. How on earth can my sacrifices, my pure and undefiled sacrifices be replaced by doing things? For instance, visiting an orphan or widow? How? James understands that since Christ has died and has risen from the dead, there is no longer a need for ongoing sacrifices. So temple sacrifices is replaced permanently. So what James is talking about is a form of worship that far transcends the sacrificial acts in the Old Testament. This is obedience. It comes through faith. So yes, James is advocating faith alone. Second proof is a contextual argument. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. I translated the glory because that just the way that the grammar is, is structured there, um, there is no word Lord in that section. What James is talking about here is the emphasis of Faith in Christ. You have faith, and I have works, is what the opponent says. This proves exactly the point that James is making through the entire book. The test of faith in chapter 1, verse 3 and following. The demonstration of faith in uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through to the end. The context of faith in chapter 2. If you believe in the Lord, you will care for those who are His and not discriminate against them. But now, that is being put to the test by this opponent. So, what exactly is behind this meaning in verse 18? James says, oh sorry, the opponent says, You have faith and I have works. I think it is obvious. But what do you think he means when he says, I have works? He's accusing James of being the faith alone person. 
You saying that faith without works is dead, but guess what? You are the one who, are, who has faith. And I am the one who have works. Think Jewish system. Contextually, James has already spoken about the law in the previous section, verse 8 through to 13. It is not far removed from the law. When we read through this or when we preach through this, we preach it in sections. So, you know, I covered verse 18 through uh, to um, 13, I think, in about seven sermons, uh, which is a long way to get to the point. But the, the, that section precedes a discussion on faith and works. It is not removed from the law. In their minds, he's just mentioned law. And here he says, the opponent says, no, 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 no. You're the one who's advocating faith only. And I am the one who advocates works. Again, what works do you think he's talking about? James has a response to that, and I'll look to that in a moment's time. What if then you remove the works of the law? What if then you remove the sacrificial system? Do you still have faith? That is the question that James is raising by the way that he forms this. Well, they don't. Because the works, the sacrifices, was part of the system. New Testament Judaism placed salvific value on the sacrifices itself. A problem that Paul and James will have to deal with within nine years from the writing of this, this epistle. It's not there yet, but elements of that has already shown up in the culture, in the society that Paul and James is writing um, in. So he says, your works is as dead as your faith. I have not identified the works yet. He made the case that the unresponsive faith in verse 14 through to 17, unresponsive faith results in no works. But here he says, hang on. Your works is actually dead as well. You have nothing to show for your claim of faith. If your claim to faith is only about ritualistic observation of certain rules and laws, then in other words, when those, the house of cards upon which your works is built, falls away, you have nothing. There is no faith then. So then both faith and works is suspect. This is why... It matters because James is combating a false religion in this congregation, in the synagogue. He's contending for true faith that will result in true works. Now, the connection to the law is this. He's already shown in chapter 2, verse 10, that if you desire to obey the, uh, a single law in the law, you are obligated to do what? Obey the entire Law. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for what? All of it. You know what James just did? He said, you know, let's say you just want to keep one aspect of the law. Just one aspect. The entire judgment on not keeping the entire 613 laws would rest upon the fact that you either keep it or you don't keep it. The entire weight of God's wrath, if you don't keep that one law, the entire weight of judging every one of those commands would weigh upon the fact that you either keep it or you don't keep it. You are guilty of all of them if you fail the one. And you are, are, are obligated to keep all of them if you keep one. Make sense? So if you say, hang on, I, I want to be a law keeper, then you're obligated to to keep the entire law. So the weight, the entire weight of the law rests on the fact that you either keep one or you keep it all. But then judgment is over all. The whole law, whether it is the artificial breakdown, which is moral, civil, civil and ceremonial, which includes food laws, or the law as a whole, understand there is no salvation in keeping the law. As a whole, there is no salvation in keeping the law, which is the argument Paul makes. And James makes here as well. He does advocate living by a different law, a law that brings liberty. The kingdom law, also known as the law of Christ. 
So through the historical motive of understanding this letter, we see that James is writing to a very Jewish community in a very specific context, and he's saying, no, you need to move beyond the law. You cannot submit yourself to the law any longer. Why? Because Christ died fulfilling every requirement of the law. So why then place yourself under that yoke? You can understand having just been removed from Jerusalem. There is still a hangover of the sacrificial system. Besides, they are in a synagogue who, who, where the law was read out of tradition and where the law was revered for what it was and not what it says. So this is the context in which James is writing. So in this Jewish context, he says to them, think beyond the law. Do not live under the law. So then when he thinks of works, what do you think he's thinking? In relation to the law. Now one last point is a grammatical argument. It is uh, in the midst of this confusion between law and, and works, or, or I should say law and faith, James in this intermixed community says, show me that kind of faith apart from those kind of works. Now let's look at the, the text again. But someone will say, the interlocutor says, you have faith, I have works. You see it now? There's a blame being put on James as the one who's advocating faith only, and he says, no, 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 no. You cannot say that I am the faith only person because I am the one who have the works. So James says in response to this, well, okay, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. There's, particular, there's a way in which James, James writes, he includes articles in, um, in, in his qualification when he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He includes articles in there, and so the structure is literally this. Show me that kind of faith by those kind of works. And I will show you this kind of faith by these kind of works. You getting it? There are two kinds of faith in view here. One faith that is very Jewish and works that is connected to that. And then James says, my kind of faith which, and, and my works are connected to it. Two different realms of religion that James is talking about. One that submits to the law and that one that does not submit to the law any longer. Therefore, he says, demonstrate your kind of faith apart from your kind of works. The word here, show or demonstrate, means to reveal, to put on display, to exhibit, to, to be visibly seen or literally to be caused to be seen. How do you physically see faith? It must be put on display, and that is what James is saying. Let's take away those works. Does your faith still exist then? Take away the works that you are engaging in, and let me see your faith. Well, you can't, and that's the point. The second grammatical um, point here is the little preposition apart, which means without or independent of. You can see the problem. How do you show faith independent of those kind of works? I know I haven't defined those kind of works yet, and I'm going to in a moment's time. James have in mind a specific kind of faith that relates to a specific kind of works, and he says, if those works fall away, does your faith still stand up? That is the conversation that is taking place in verse 18. Now, Let's deal with what is in view here. How can a view in that day cause others to see their faith? How do you think a Jew, let's not think Christ now, prior to Christ, how would a Jew demonstrate that he was a faithful Jew? Submits to the law and does what? Sacrifice. Right? Observe the law. That is what James has in view when he says, show me that kind of faith by that kind of works. Let's remove those works from the equation. Does your faith still stand? The answer is no. That's the point. 
They cannot demonstrate faith apart from the system of the law. If that goes in first century Judaism, there is no faith then. There is no religion then. Because it was built into the system. James is calling out a different faith and a different work. He says, that is not saving faith, nor are those the works that show saving faith. But if you take my faith and my works, I will demonstrate to you that I have been changed by God. A faith that is not predicated upon works. A faith that is not merely in a system. A faith that does not rely upon my effort but resides in a person. Chapter 2 verse 1. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory. By this, James shows the complete inadequacy of the law to bring sinners to repentance and a right relationship with God. He says, those, that faith and that works will never result in salvation. But I will show you a different faith that results in a different kind of works. Does that make sense? Okay, because that was a long way to explain a very simple point. Since their faith is dead, it can never result in works that please God. The legal system of the law, I should say the sacrificial system of the law, does not bring satisfaction to God. What does he say in Hosea? I think it's chapter 2 verse 8. For sacrifices and offerings I have not desired. The last proof is the counter-argument that James provides, which is what I've just explained to you. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Two different kinds of faith, two different kinds of works that is in view. One was dependent on tradition, laws, and regulation, and the other is dependent on a person. Chapter 2 verse 1 sets the stage for the entire chapter. It is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the Lord will be demonstrated in a particular way that does not depend upon the works of the law. You can see why the claim to have faith was such a problem. And James says, no, you don't really have faith. That's why you don't really have works. And the opponent says, no, I do have works. Yeah, you do. You've got the works of the law which does not result in salvation. James says, you know what? I will show you my faith by my works, literally through or by the means of my works. I can demonstrate my faith. But you take your works away, there is no faith. Understand the weight here. Ritualistic, legalistic, traditional observation of these rules and regulations did not change the heart. Could not change the heart. For if the system of your works-based religion is removed, then your faith will also be removed. I'm going to push the envelope here, and I'm going to say we often see this in churches as well. Church splits over pastors leaving. Well, I'm not a follower of this guy, so I'm done. Music team's folding. Well, that is it for me. I can't go there anymore. When your faith is built into a system, and the system crumbles, with will the faith remain? That is what James is after. When you maybe sing a hymn between the breaking of bread and the taking up of the cup, People will lose their bonkers over that. How dare you change the, the tradition that we have? And they leave because the system was changed. Think about it. If you take the hats away, does the faith remain? If you take, if you add, let me, I won't say add because you're not adding into it. They actually sang a hymn. Uh, between the breaking of the bread and drinking of, of the cup. So if you want to be biblical, we should actually sing between the two. But anyway, let's say you're in a church that doesn't do that. And suddenly, some, one Sunday morning, one of the elders or one of the saints decide, no, we're singing this morning between the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup. Some people will lose their faith over that because you, you've broken a tradition. 
They leave. Why? Because their faith is linked to a system. But if the system breaks, their faith breaks with it. James says, let me take away the works of the system. Let me see what remains. Do you really have faith? And that is the weight of the question that James poses to this person. This is one of the earliest um, documents that we have between the conflict of biblical Christianity and First Testament, um, um, New Testament Judaism. What James is making absolutely clear to his object, objector is, I can, sorry, consistently show my faith and my works. Because my faith will result in works, but you can't. If you take anything away, your system crumbles. Your faith is in your works. Whereas my faith is revealed by my works. This is what James is saying. Do you actually have faith? Do you really have faith? So let's take away the Sabbath practice. Do you still have faith? Let's take away the sacrifices. Do you still have faith? Let's take away the food laws. Do you still have faith? The answer would be no, because their faith was bound up in the system. It seems that James still has in the back of his mind the echo of how they dealt with the poor person in that synagogue. The action or inaction towards this poor person is indicative of the faith that they have, and that is what he's pointing out to them. You don't really have faith. James shows that true faith and works that's resultant of such faith is inseparable are inseparable. But this does not, but this is not works of the law. This is works that comes as a result of saving faith. God's people cares about God's people, which is James's point in this chapter. By this, James condemns mere mental orthodox assent to the truth. He's challenging a Jewish misconception of New Testament faith. As we will see later on in the two examples that James gives, that it is not enough to just say that you believe. It is not enough to say, well, I agree with you. Which takes us to the next point. Not only as works important in the equation of faith, not resulting in, but as a result of faith, so too, orthodox faith is not enough in the equation of faith. This may scare some of you, and it's not because of what I'm going to say, but read the text, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The second argument James makes is that it is not enough for you to say that you merely believe in facts about God. As I mentioned earlier, works that works for God's approval will not result in approval but condemnation. This means you cannot bank on the fact that you merely say, I am a Christian. I believe that God, of the, the God of the Bible, created or exists. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. That is not enough. Let me put it this way. People can go lost while believing orthodox truth about God and Christ without experiencing the life-transforming grace of God. There are some of us here that, that do believe what we believe about Jesus Christ that do believe orthodox truth about God, but they've never placed their faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. They haven't come past chapter 2, verse 1, putting your faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 19, James shows that there is an orthodox faith that far exceeds the, faith, the orthodox faith of human ability. Now, this does not mean that faith or belief is, belief is insufficient, but rather the claim to faith, the profession of certain doctrinal truths, is not enough to have a relationship with 
God. James hits right at the core of Jewish conviction. Look at verse 19. You will say you believe that God is one. That comes from the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. God is a unified, monotheistic God. Yahweh Eleheinu, Yahweh Echad. It's an inseparable clause, meaning that God exists as God forever as one. The quintessential foundational monotheistic declaration of Jewish faith. I know that's a mouthful. This is what made them distinct from the nations. The nations had multiple temples to worship at. Why? Because they had multiple gods. Jews, Jews had one temple, or one tabernacle, which became the temple. One temple to worship at. Why? Because they had one God to worship. The, this truth saturated the entire existence as a nation. So what James is saying here is that if that is all you believe, if all you can say is that I believe in a monotheistic God, the God who is the creator of all things and is my God, if that is all you believe, you've got a problem. You've got a major problem. It, it is interesting that he... The, the form of the verb that he puts the belief in is that this is an ongoing reality at this time. So they are believing that he is the one God, the one true God. But he says, you know what? It is not enough. Well done. Well done. You get double thumbs up. But, but, the demons believe also. Wow. you got to love how James goes right to the core of it. The very foundation of the entire nation's belief system is that God is one. And he says, you know what? That is not enough. If that is all you're banking on, you don't know God. Well done, guys. But the demon's belief is just as orthodox as yours. James is saying, if your claim to faith is acknowledged, if your claim to faith is, is just wrapped up in this belief, well, then you don't have anything other than what a demon has, which is a knowledge of God and a knowledge of submission to God. The word demons here um, relates to those demons who have rebelled against God because of the devil and with the devil have been uh, thrown out of, out of heaven um, and, and shunned um, and will be shunned in the future as well, never to return to the glories of heaven. These guys who do not submit to God believe the exact same thing that you believe. They believe in the facts of God as well. But take note at the end of verse 19. The demons believe and what? Shudder. You can just imagine you take a, a bunch of reeds in your hand and you start shaking it. That trembling is what this word means. Or maybe you have a brother or sister that's younger than you and you grab them by the shoulder. That shaking, that is in view. Now, please don't do this at home. Ouch. You may think you are orthodox. But all you have done is claim what demons claim. They believe exactly the same thing as you believe. But get this, they actually respond. They may not submit to God yet, but they fear Him. They fear Him. They shudder, they quiver, they tremble at the knowledge of who God is. In other words, what on earth are you doing? not submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord, who is the glory. Do you, I don't know if you see it yet, but the, this entire section, you cannot take it in independent phrases and clauses and sentences. You have to keep the entire chapter in view to make sense of this. James is saying about these demons that there is a visceral, instinctive, undeniable response to the knowledge of God. 
So if you know who he truly is, there will be a visible response to him in submission to him. The, the, the faith of the demons here, the, the shuddering, is an ongoing present reality. They, they are always in fear and trepidation because of what they know about God. Let me put it this way. The demons and the devil have a better theology than we do. Oftentimes. Demons and the devil sometimes have a better response to God than we do. What James is pointing out here is if your entire system is based on the fact that you only believe that God is one, you are in major trouble. It, what utter disgrace to claim to know God and never respond better than demons. Demons do not submit. They will, they will cause to submit in a future day, but they do not submit. Which means you are worse than a demon when it comes to your faith. Even worse, when your knowledge is based on the revelation of God to man and you have orthodox truth revealed and you affirm it, saying, I believe it, but have nothing to show for that, then your claim to faith is no better than demonic faith. That is scary. So we come back to this claim that James is making. All you have is this claim to faith. If I take your works away, what do you have? This claim? It's not enough. But my faith will be shown by my works because my faith is placed in the Lord of glory. And so as a result of that, I love His people. I serve His people. I care for those who are suffering amongst His people. What on earth are you doing? It is not enough to merely profess faith that, is on, that only has ritualistic external demonstrations. But when that is removed, the faith does not stand. That's the point James is making. Knowing truth about God is no different to what demons possess. And it means absolutely nothing. Knowing God must have a transforming effect in the life of the one that claims to know God. So if you claim that you know God... It must be seen in how you live. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon on this verse called The True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. Quote, As part of it, he says, Whatever clear notions a man may have, of the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of the two covenants, he is covenantal, so covenant of works and covenant of grace, the economy of the persons of the Trinity. If he can discourse excellently of the offices of Christ, happily solving difficulties and answering objections, if he has no more knowledge of this sort than a hundred Sorry, if he has more knowledge of this sort than hundreds of true saints of ordinary education, yet all of this in, is in no certain evidence of any degree of saving grace in his heart. End quote. Even if he knows the truth in and out and can adequately converse it with people, that in Edwards' mind is no sure proof that there is any degree of saving grace in that person. Brothers and sisters, that is scary. For a church like us, who major on being exegetically found, sound, who majors on knowing scripture, and we should, because how do you live if you don't know scripture, who majors on enforcing, uh, bad word, or encouraging men to be theologians at home. All that will mean nothing if all you have is a claim to a devotion to Jesus Christ and never living as if he is Lord of your life. That means absolutely nothing. Knowledge is not an indicator of saving faith, and it scares me. It scares me. 
not only for myself, but also for men that I have served with uh, and, and studied with at seminary. I've seen so many have fallen along the wayside, abandoned the faith, turned their, their hearts away from Christ. Why? Because it's all head knowledge. And when head knowledge is all you have as the foundation of your faith, then you must be concerned because you are no different to a demon in your faith. James ends a section with a very sobering conclusion. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What else must I do, is he saying? The word here, foolish person, is actually stupid. I mean, there's no better way to say it. One who's empty-headed. A person who lacks insight. Faith apart from works is useless. That is a stench before the very presence of God. If all you do is come to church and claim that you know God but never demonstrate that you actually do know Him, your, the aroma of your faith rises up equal to, to the aroma of the faith of a demon. It is a stench before God. James says, do you really want to be shown? It is a warning. Do you really want God to make sure that you understand the kind of faith that you have? Do you want to be shown who you really are? The answer is no, you don't. You want to be on the right side of this. Have saving faith and demonstrate that saving faith by how you live. In other words, wake up people. Wake up. It's not enough to say, I love the Lord and never live as if you truly do. I'm always um, criticized for not being very practical in my preaching. And you might have known, I don't care much for pointing out practical as aspects of living because I believe the scripture is sufficient to do that for you. I am not the Holy Spirit. God alone will bring about that conviction. But I want to say this. It may sound a little bit practical. <laughs> if the only thing we know is a system that sustains us, whether it is keeping a day, a holy diet, whatever it may be, think of it. Whatever it is, if God should remove that thing, that thing that you base your entire existence of your Christian walk on, if God should remove that thing, will your faith continue? What if this church falls? What if God decides to remove the elders, and I pray that he doesn't, but what if he, what if he does? Will you remain faithful to your Lord? What if the music band fails? What if they don't ever pitch again? Will you remain faithful to the Lord? What about that thing that you say, oh no, we actually have to do this because the Bible says so. This is part of our faith in existence. What if that falls away? Do you still have faith? You know what James says? Such a person... If they don't have faith, is a foolish person. Their faith is worthless. There are two things that is highlighted in verse 14 through to verse 20. Workless faith is of no value to God. And now in verse 20. Workless faith is of no value to yourself. Workless faith can only survive putrefaction on one account, when that faith is placed in Jesus Christ and when that faith affects the way that you live. Without the divine life-giving work of God by faith in Christ, which is new life, without him doing that, whatever you do is an offense to God. If you are not saved and you're serving in this church, if you're not saved and you're going to Bible studies, if you're not saved and claiming to know Jesus Christ, it is a stench before God. Why? Because you do not really know him, but you're acting as if you do. I pray for you. I pray that you call upon him, that you implore him not to consider your works, but to receive you as his child. Make him your Lord 
and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word, for the conviction that it brings, for the power and authority that it has in and of itself. I pray, Lord, that you would drive deep into our hearts the necessity of the kind of men and women that you desire us to be, Lord. There may be those who have demonic faith here this morning, who only know you on a theoretical and academic level. Lord, I pray that you would crush such faith and grant saving faith to them, that they may know you for who you are. And more than just shuddering as demons do, may they bow the knee in submission to Christ as Lord, that their lives may be changed for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.